Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining. I am your host, Seth Haskin. I started this podcast to dive deeper into the ways we know one another and God. The goal is to ask the question of how God loves. I invite people from many walks of life to join me on this adventure. Now, we dive deeper into God's relationship with us, and thus we have to bring him into the third dimension, but also understand that he's in the fourth dimension and can't fully understand him. I would love to welcome and thank our guest today. She has a BA from Albion College and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin for medical microbiology and immunology. She also did her postdoctorate at the National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver. Our guest has also been involved in the club, uh, the club at Bethel, Science and Religion. This club focuses on the roles of religion in, in science and vice versa, as well as it tackles the topics of how science can work with religion. She has a smile and a great outgoing personality that are both contagious. Welcome our guest today, Dr. Joyce Doan. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Seth. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. Of course. Um, so beyond what you've already shared about my sort of academic resume, I uh, grew up in southeastern Michigan and for a while kept migrating one time zone west until we came to Minnesota, my husband and I, uh, 18 years ago so that I could join the faculty here at Bethel. I was really drawn uh, both to Minnesota as a return to the Midwest, but mm -hmm. also to the science and faith opportunities that presented themselves here at Bethel, because that had become a passion of mine uh, throughout my PhD and postdoc years. Sounds like uh, Midwest roots stay here. Indeed. <laughs> All right. So um, is there any reason you chose biology specifically? Oh, that's a great question. So I went to college uh, as a political science pre-law major. and Very different. Very, very different. But the thing, the, the bridge between there and where I landed is that I was very interested ultimately in the pursuit of truth. Mm -hmm. And when I started in college, I sort of realized that you could be more than a physician or a high school science teacher yes. with a biology degree. And I what really resonated with me about biology initially was the ability to do experimental work and sort of learn how things that are seemingly chaotic are really quite ordered and to figure out that order underneath the surface of everything. Love it. I love biology, though, so, you know, I'm a little biased. Um, so as an academic immunologist, what does a day in the life look like? Oh, it really depends on what level of academic immunology you're doing. So when I was a graduate student and postdoc, I'd wake up in the morning, I would head over to the lab, and my day would consist of, you know, managing three or four different timers as I timed experiments and worked in the literature and wrote and analyzed around all the wet bench work that was happening here. So, so what's wet bench work for those who don't know? Oh, just putting your hands on experiments. So I'd be handling cells and chemicals and most of it honestly looks like you're moving small volumes of liquid from one tube to another mm -hmm. because most of what I do is not visible to the naked eye. You know, microimmunology. So. Exactly. Who knows? Who knows? Um, what is the best thing about what you do and what is something that is like, eh, it's okay? Yeah, well, so teaching work, which is the primary focus of mm -hmm. what I do at Bethel, uh, there are some similarities to the day, days in the lab, you know, in that I have quite a bit of autonomy over my time, which I really love. I have some firm deadlines like showing up for classes and grading final exams. Um, 
but I love the spirit of inquiry that follows me around, whether I'm in the lab or whether I'm in the classroom. Um, I love having agency over my classes and over a great amount of my schedule. Uh, and really what keeps me doing this is that I truly have a heart for students. I love students. I love where people in that 18 to 22-year-old range sort of live intellectually and spiritually and emotionally. And I can't really imagine doing anything else. What was your life like in that period of 18 <laughs> to 22-year-old intellectual, spiritual type deal? Oh, my. Um, I was a nerdy girl, for sure. Um I fit right in in the sciences when I went to college. I, you know, I never met an exam I didn't want to study for. Um, but emotionally and spiritually, I was a little bit untethered when Got I it. started college. Uh, and so I became a biologist before before I became a Christian. Uh, you know, they weren't too far apart, but I became a biologist. And about a year later, I became a Christian. And from that point on, I think that a lot of my academic journey has paralleled my spiritual journey. And as, as I've sought to bring those two things together uh, in, into a, like a space where they both can live at least reasonably harmoniously most of the time. Hence the, you know, leadership in the science and religion club here at Bethel. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you went to Oxford, uh, England, right? Uh, about science and religion. I right. did. There's a there's a group at the University of Oxford that's part of or a subsidiary, I guess, of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities mm -hmm. that Bethel belongs to, and they hosted a two year visiting scholars program, uh, largely for CCCU faculty from North America. We also had a few international fellows, and we all gathered for two summers in Oxford to do a residency in science and religion work. And what did that consist of exactly? Oh, it was like going back to college with the benefit of hindsight. And was it free? Oh, we actually got a stipend to do it. Oh, yep. you got paid. That's nice. Yeah, I got paid a little <laughs> bit to do it. So, you know, both summers we would have what amounted to classes. So we'd have lecturer mm -hmm. lectures from world-class scholars in various aspects of science and religion typically two to three days a week. And then the other couple of days a week were reserved for our own personal research. Mm -hmm. We also all were involved in um, UK style tutorials where we were, you know, sort of paired up with an expert who could really speak into the work that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And then they mentored us one-on-one. -on -one. And that's a good investment for any Christian university or college to have you from, to represent that college, come back with that information. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So um, my next couple of questions are going to be about relationships, and then we're going to kind of tie relationships into what you do personally um, as a biologist, immunologist, everything that you do, and how that relates to the way we view God and our relationships with one another. So a couple of base questions that I usually ask everyone is the first one, what comes to mind when you hear the word relationship? And how does that interpretation influence your interactions with others? Ooh, so I immediately get two pictures when I hear the word relationship. Mm -hmm. One is a constellation, like literally looking at the night sky, looking for constellations, seeing how there are these different celestial bodies that are, you know, they're in three dimensions, but they hold one another in relationship. And you see this pattern emerging from the group of individuals. 
that's one image that I think about a lot when mm-hmm. I think about relationships is how we are positioned with respect to others, how they're res- positioned with respect to us and how we can kind of move together through life. Um, the other end of the spectrum is really the cell. And mm-hmm. I think about the relationship between like the cells within my body and how they interact with one another, how some of those interactions are long-term, essentially permanent for the span of our life, how some of them are very transient um, and exist only for seconds or minutes, depending on what those biological processes are doing for us. And how does that um, those images influence the way you interact with, per se, people? Mm. So... You know, I think that my interactions with people are definitely informed by what I think about cells. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you look at cells in a multicellular organism, they, as long as they are genetically healthy and metabolically healthy, they tend to make decisions for the good of the organism. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions I often ask myself in relationship to other people is, am I making decisions that are not just good for me, but mm-hmm. are, am I making decisions that are for the good of the people around me and the broader community? Yeah. And definitely there are some words that we use when talking about relationships with people um, that are used in biology to describe relationships among living organisms, you know, like toxic or healthy, you know, those types of words can be translated into relationships with people. And like how we view those words is kind of the similar way that we view them in science, you know, like toxic is not good and it needs to, you know, be eliminated of some kind or dealt with in a certain way. And same with relationships. We don't want those things in our life because they're not helping us or the community around us. Exactly. And, you know, in immunology, um, military metaphors are have historically been pretty mm-hmm. prevalent in immunology. Like we have invaders and we have soldiers that try to eliminate the threat, um, which I actually personally find really interesting mm-hmm. because the vast majority of microorganisms on Earth, in spite of what the last two years have maybe led us to believe, are, you know, not... We're either neutral in relationship to those organisms Mm -hmm. or we would be lost without them. Yep. And that can be said with um, the new um, gastroimmunology. Um, This huge wave of new gastroimmunologists, the degree of gastroimmunology and the study of the gut bacteria because it's so important. It's labeled the second brain for a reason. Oh, yeah. The microbiome is so fascinating. And when I look at that, I honestly see models for how we talk about things like reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my next question for you would be, do you believe it's important to categorize relationships or do you categorize relationships, not just on a biological level, but also a relational human level? Hmm. So I I think I try to approach every interaction that I have with another person as in in a person first kind Mm -hmm. of way. Um, my son has actually told me that his friends, so I have a 14 year old son Mm -hmm. and he's told me that his friends think I'm the cool mom, but which blows my mind because I am not the cool mom, but they all recognize that I talk to them like they're people and Mm -hmm. not like they're kids. Yes. And so that I think is very central to how I view at least sort of this, the first step of having relationships with people. You know, of course, there are going to be differences in how I relate to different groups of folks. Like, I think about how 
Um, how I interact, for example, with my family is very different than how I interact with my colleagues. Um, there are different levels of emotional intimacy there. Mm -hmm. um, I also think about how I interact with students as a teacher. And I think I have a tendency to teach with, I would say, somewhat less emotional distance mm -hmm. from my students than, you know, than some people and probably more than others. But that's something that I do think about quite a bit is how much emotional distance of, am I putting between myself and other people? Um, because while it's not a good idea to tell everyone you come across your life story, yes. there's a lot of value in being open to learning about and learning from everyone around you, no matter who they are or where they are in life. So would you say that your categorization quote-unquote categorization of your interactions with people is all about intimacy and emotional intimacy at that. I think that that's, that tends to be where my focus is. Yeah. Okay. That was just a curiosity because I know you were talking about emotional intimacy there for a little bit. So, um, and then my next question before we start connecting these topics with your degree and your, you know, studying um, is what comes to mind when you envision a relationship with God? Um, it's, it's something that's bigger than I think I can adequately put words to. Um, I think I'm going to tell you a story Perfect. about, um, one of the summers I was in the UK, I spent several days in Edinburgh and on the spur of the moment, I went to the Edinburgh Botanical Gardens and the biology, the, the ecology of the UK was fascinating to me. You know, looking at where it is on a map, I didn't expect it to have the botanical diversity that it does. And so walking through the Edinburgh Botanical Gardens, the thought that kept coming to my mind is that I could smell three dozen shades of green mm -hmm. um, in addition to seeing them. And it was just, it was an incredible sensory experience. And as I was walking through one of the groves that they had planted, um, a lot of the plants were in flower and a lot of them had just sort of passed flowering. Mm -hmm. And I was so incredibly struck by the fact that these flowers that had passed their prime and had fallen on the ground and were literally dying underneath my feet were providing the resources for the next generation of life. Mm -hmm. And so it was like walking through a landscape that was full of death and resurrection and of things that might be painful and things that are incredibly beautiful. Um, and that I think very much describes how my relationship with God has been. You know, it's a walk through a garden. It's a long walk in one direction with purpose, but sometimes, you know, you're standing on death and sometimes you're standing on resurrection. Wow. That's intense, <laughs> but it's so good. It's so good to think about that. I would have never have thought about that. So thank you for opening my eyes to that. Um, since science is such a big thing for both of us, because we're, you know, fellow science people, um, we're, I'm going to try to connect relationships in science, which isn't that hard because science is literally the study of relationships in, you know, together. Um, so, what is your view of what science is? So, so I would categorize science as at least three, three or four different things. So on a very basic level, it is a body of empirical knowledge. So it's a body of knowledge. It's also a method 
or a collection of methods for investigating as objectively as a human can the mm-hmm. world. Um, it also is, uh-oh, lost my train of thought. So it's a body of knowledge. It's a method. It's a way of thinking. Uh, so you can think scientifically about things that are not necessarily experiments. And as a person of faith, I would also add that science is a mode of worship and can be about loving God and loving others. Mm-hmm. Um, why um, do you think science is so important for understanding God? Mm. You know, there are a number of authors from very, very different parts of the spiritual spectrum who have all written books with titles like The Language of God, mm-hmm. uh, The Fire in the Equations, things like that. Um, and I think that, like many scientists, I recognize that that there's got to be something that breathes life into the patterns Um and like many others, I've concluded that that's God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember um, the Science and Religion Club did a, or they brought a um, one-man show. I don't remember what it was called. Do you? Mr. Darwin's Tree. Yeah, Mr. Darwin's Tree. And I remember they were, he. the show was talking about, discussing these topics of like how when Darwin was creating his book, what his conclusions were, because his he came from a family of faith, his wife was a very um, um, religious woman. And so like how he was tackling the topics and he had people coming at him for his discoveries and stuff like that, and how he was going through that. And I think it's so interesting that he never like um, renounced his faith, um, but he was more of like, this could be a way of like, you know, studying who God is and like how things work the way God created them. And so I think it was so interesting to, have that view of science and religion working together um, and not necessarily canceling each other out. It's not like um, the belief in science is not the same as the belief in God. And I think that's some struggle that um, society has is that you either believe in science or you believe in God. And I think that's such a dialectic way of thinking. And I think they're so intertwined and together. Yeah, well, you know, a, a prevailing idea about the interaction of science and religion is often called the two, bro- two books approach. Mm-hmm. And that goes back as far as Augustine um, and has been fleshed out significantly by many scholars since then. But it's this basic idea that we have God who, you know, as you talk about in the show, exists both in our three-dimensional space but also exists outside of that in a fourth dimension um, who is the author of two texts, so mm-hmm. the two books, Scripture and Nature. And we would affirm that those two books in their original form, as the author intended them, are without blemish, mm-hmm. right? And then as humans, we engage in these very limited and somewhat fallible processes of science and theology where we get glimpses of what is real and true and light um, and absolutely beautiful as we go about this work. But we also are missing huge pieces of the puzzle just because one human or even one human civilization's comprehension can't fathom the immensity of what God is and does. Yeah. Reminds me of any book in the Bible, but specifically Job, where it's um, he 
allows Job to become in this state of being and everyone's telling him to renounce God and so on and so forth. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And then God shows him that um, there was no necessarily reason for this, but it was more of like showing God's character can never fully be understood. And we may get glimpses of what God's character may be like. Um, and we may use science and relationships and nature to understand how God works and what God is like. But again, we will never fully understand. So I think the two book idea is brilliant um, in helping us understand who God is. Um, my next question is, um, I know you are a fellow enthusiast of the arts. Yes. Um, how does this help you in science or how does it relate to your passion for science as well? So when I think about, you know, I don't know if it's typical for a person to think about how their brain is organized, but when I think about how my brain is organized, which I find myself doing, um, I envision a bridge that from one side is built very methodically and geometrically with perfectly placed beams and angles. And from the other side is this organic tangle of vines and roots and trees and flowers. Um, And I feel like I have sort of two modes of interacting with the world. And one is very rational, very logical, very capable of taking in information and designing experiments to test hypotheses. And then the other side of my brain is highly intuitive. Um, and works very much by feel. And I found that as I worked my way through my PhD and my postdoc and my teaching career here, that those two aspects of how I work play off one another. Um, So, you know, sometimes I just have to kind of do the grunt work of doing all the logical, rational steps to get to the end. But very frequently, I intuitively know where I want something to go And then kind of have to reverse engineer the path to get there. Um, And I feel the same way about artistic expression. Uh, And in fact, you know, I'm I'm both a painter and I enjoy drawing Celtic knot work or Celtic knot inspired pieces. And I find that if I am in my personal life working on something that's a little more intuitive and tangly, I'm going to draw knots because that's a series of very, it's got a method. It's got a series of very regular lines and angles. There's a process. And if I'm working through something that's very process oriented in my life, I'm reaching for various kinds of fluid media and I'm doing things that are much more emotionally focused in my art. I don't know if that gets at what you were asking there. No, it it makes sense that I think there are so many examples of, uh, scientific thinkers who use art to help them through things. I mean, uh, Einstein played the violin. Um, there was a whole bunch of people. I mean, Da Vinci, you know, the, the true Renaissance man, as they say, uh, he was drawn up everything that he was studying, you know, and some theoretical things that he did too. And it was just, it just amazes me that there is so much division I think, with the arts and science when they're so interconnected. You know, there's a there's an underlying current of creativity in both the arts and the sciences, and they work themselves out in very different mm-hmm. ways, but at base, they're both highly creative endeavors. Yeah, definitely. Um, which leads me to my next question is, um, how can the arts 
and the sciences help us uh, think about relationships because you have psychology, you know, who can that can help us um, understand the brain and how it works. But then you have art, which can help us understand certain feelings. You know, it invokes certain things. So how can both of those work together to help us understand relationships? Mm. Um, I definitely feel more competent to talk about the science side of that question. <laughs> um, wow. I, you know, I think both the arts and the sciences describe the human condition in very different ways. And I think they speak to this idea that we need to have both logic and rationality and feeling and depth of feeling across the whole emotional spectrum in order to be complete. And so I, I guess I think that the arts and the sciences kind of hold hands and speak to the full spectrum of human experience. Um, interestingly, one of the things that drew me to immunology, uh, more so than, say, genetics or biochemistry, uh, was the idea that I could study relationships. I was interested in how humans relate to the microbial world. I was interested in how our white blood cells relate to one another, how they relate to our own bodies in the case of things like autoimmunity or tumor immunology mm -hmm. um, you know, or immune deficiency diseases. And so immunology is a highly relational biological discipline. And if you ever go to a conference, we we use the, the, the funniest words, right? So it's like you'll hear T-cell people and they literally talk, like they literally characterize some of the population level things that are happening as genocides or fratricides um, just because of the nature of those interactions. It's a very relational discipline. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that um, those words to for relationship-wise with um, immunology um, – do you think they're they're like this because of the way we view relationships with humans on human and not cell on human, but humans on humans and the way we use those words can translate into immunology? You know, I do. I definitely think that the metaphors that we use to describe immunological functions are drawn from the various metaphors that we use in broader culture. Um, you know, I, I tend to be very hesitant in my use of military metaphors because when I look at the immune system, I see a system that is aimed at maintaining balance. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, I don't see it as a fighting system or as a system for war against microbes, for example, but as a system to maintain ba healthy boundaries. It's about maintaining healthy boundaries and maintaining a healthy balance both within a person's body and between that person's body and their environment. And when things get out of balance, you know, we have symptoms. The other big reason I hesitate to utilize military metaphors in particular is that I think that they can contribute to some of the stigmatization that we've seen of various biological conditions over the years. And generally there's, you know, the baton gets passed, you know, during each era. So like it started, I, like we're not going to go way, way back, but for a while it was leprosy. Um, and so like having leprosy was a, was hugely stigmatizing. Um, the things that were done to ostracize people with leprosy are pretty appalling. And then after a while, it became syphilis and then it became tuberculosis and then it became cancer and then it became HIV. 
uh, you know, and it's hard to say what it's going to be next, but there always is kind of this one disease or condition where, you know, it's like we don't talk about that in polite company, mm-hmm. right? It's like you talk about that in like whispered tones, a room over, because um, for whatever reason, culturally, there's moral judgment ascribed to a specific diagnosis. But I think a lot of that is based in the metaphors that we use to talk about health and disease. So I I try to be thoughtful mm-hmm. in how I use my metaphors because I know my metaphors are going to say something about how I view a person who is carrying a virus like HIV, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. So with your metaphors and your thought process through them, how do you think through your metaphors when talking about relationships with people and not necessarily relationships with people and viruses? Mm. Um, you know, I honestly think that they're that they're pretty simple, pretty similar, right? It's like I try to avoid, whenever I can, I try to avoid metaphors that other people or that would promote conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I tend to be pretty quick to look for common ground in most cases. Yeah. I'm just thinking of like the metaphor of toxic, yes. you know, this idea of toxicity um, and the way we use it in human to human relationships and how it has become this big word in human to human relationships. And it is this othering of another person. And um, I remember reading the book Frentimacy by Shasta Nelson. Great book. If you ever get the chance, she talks about how intimacy and friendships is a great thing and like what causes intimacy and friendships and how it can help us in our day-to-day lives. Um, she was talking about this idea of toxicity and this uptick in trends of like, oh, cut the toxic people out of your life and, you know, this, this, and this, and this metaphor of, um, I don't know if it's necessarily a metaphor, but I'm going to say a metaphor right now, um, of toxicity um, in your life with relationships. And I guess it can be kind of dangerous, she says in the book, to say someone's toxic or that relationship is toxic when it actually probably isn't. And we're just ascribing that thought to that relationship because of what is said around us. Yeah, I think I would tend to agree with that. Um, You know, there are definitely relationships and we've all probably had them where we are better off having a firm boundary with, you know, a particular individual, for Mm -hmm. example, um, because they do us more harm than they do good. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be very hesitant to classify a, just to call a person like you are a toxic person. You are just poison. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I might be willing to say, you know, you are toxic to me and I have to have a boundary here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd probably be more likely to try to figure out how to set some appropriate boundaries and maintain a relationship, although certainly not under every condition. There are certainly relationships that need to just part company. Yeah. There are those relationships where it's just like not the best point in time to have them. Yes. Um, And I think that needs to be said as well that they may be going through something and you're going through something. And when you come together, there's this third person per se that isn't enjoyable. So, um, yeah, well, and there are relationships that are actively harmful, right? Like I would not encourage anyone to 
try to stay engaged with, for example, an abuser, mm-hmm. whether it's emotional or physical, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that would be a case where you'd say like, there's got to be a firm boundary here. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have contact with one another. But generally speaking, you know, I, you know, I, I've lost, I've lost a few, not close friends, but I've lost a few acquaintances and I've got a few family members that don't speak to me anymore after, you know, after these last few years of COVID because we have differing thoughts about Mm -hmm. the science. Um, And rather than trying to have a conversation about what science is and what it does and how we're interpreting it, they just pulled the plug. And Mm. that kind of thing grieves me where we insist that there is an us and a them and we're only going to sit at the table with people like us. Yeah. That I find lamentable. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that's kind of been the way science has influenced people's lives, sadly, a lot of the times um, since the um, Enlightenment era, mm-hmm. where you had a lot of these new ideas of how things work. And then you had people who didn't understand them necessarily or something other than that per se and it just divided relationships instead of bringing them together um and i think that is a big stigma around the christian community too with science and i think it's so hard to sometimes um see this beautiful bridge that is science and religion and god um in churches and i think that is kind of concerning for me especially when you are a STEM major and you're a firm believer. So, yeah, I think we need to start reviewing our way of thinking about science as a society, especially as the body of Christ, um, and stop um, dividing the two. Um, And I think that's the biggest problem is the division between the two. Amen. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I mean you know i i teach uh i teach the seat right now i teach the senior seminar course which is a science science and faith integration seminar for mm-hmm. the biology department so just biology majors sorry folks um <laughs> but the the symbol that i have in my mind very frequently is the ampersand right you know mm-hmm. the and like there's this there's this space for and um and if you allow space for that to happen you can embrace your own limitations and your own uncertainty and hold the tension where it exists between the two. And, you know, the older I get, I've found I've had to get better at holding tension because as more life happens, more questions crop up. Um, and I found that my faith has sort of like the essentials of my faith from back when I became a Christian in college, like the essentials are very much unmoved. But as I've moved toward, you know, God at the center of all of this and moved toward Christ at the center of all of this, I found that there are quite a few peripheral things that I've just let go of um, because I don't need to be certain about them in order to believe the gospel story. Yeah, definitely. Um, I tracking back to what you said before about science helping us understand God. Um, If science can help us understand um, God, then how how come people don't think that science is a discipline? Like, it could be a different way. Like, there's different theologies. Why can't there be different thought processes when it comes to finding out who God is? 
and his character in science being one of those quote-unquote theologies. Mm. Well, there is a whole area um, of academic study that gets alternately called natural theology or theology mm-hmm. of nature. And at its you know, at its sort of base, uh, some people used to take it as sort of an apologetics task, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to try to prove the existence of God by looking at nature. And the more we learned about nature, the harder that became. Um, you know, there's a very famous poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson who talks about nature red in tooth and claw. Um, this idea that, you know, like humans are standing here proclaiming that love is God's law. And then you like kind of look off to the side at nature and they're the predators with the blood of their prey on their teeth and claws. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and this, which is really the problem of pain, uh, which has become more, you know, more prominent and more difficult to get around over time as we come up with these scientific explanations. But it, 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 I don't, you know, I can't see how it can negate God's presence and power mm-hmm. in the world. You know, it, it helps us, you know, it maybe helps us understand the nature and extent of that. But, you know, I'm a finite person trying my best to understand, you know, the will and the love of an infinite creator. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not going to do very well at that sometimes. Yeah. Um, so this is a question that I've had for a long time, and it's kind of a deeper question because it has to do with um, who God is and his character. And it comes down to um, deism. Do you know what deism is? Yes. You know, the watchmaker makes a watch, sets it, and then let's go, never gets involved. I don't, I find myself thinking like a deist could. You know, God set everything in motion at the beginning and then stepped away and then let everything happen. But his plan was so grand that when he set it in motion, this is what was going to happen anyways, because he's the watchmaker. He makes the watch and it does that. I can find myself being in that state of mind sometimes, but also having a contrast of like, no, he's he he is involved in our lives because he did send Jesus. Um, He was in the Bible stories, you know, and so on and so forth. How can we um, help encourage people who may be having these same doubts about like God or this deist thought mm. with science, of course, because like I, I believe I study sciences and I'm like, this could all just like work and work and work. And like if God just set it in motion, it would happen like this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you've hit on one of the very tricky subjects here because I think both scientists and non-scientists alike recognize that when we walk into a lab, we don't expect God to intervene in our actual experiments because if God went mucking about with the laws of nature while we were doing our studies, nothing would be consistent, nothing would be reproducible, and that would honestly not be a characteristic of a good God. That would be very capricious and almost malicious for God to sort of fiddle in things at that particular level. So there's a sense in which, as a scientist, I have to embrace a level of um, what I'll call methodological naturalism, Mm -hmm. which is just when I go in and I do the scientific method in my lab, I have to believe that there is not supernatural intervention Mm -hmm. beyond God's typical work of sustaining the creation so there, there is supernatural activity in my hands when I'm in the lab, but it's the sustaining divine action of God, not an interventional divine action mm-hmm. of God. 
But then as a Christian, I have to walk out of the lab and I have to believe, and I don't say I have to, but I choose to believe um, that there's the potential for intervention, for God to intervene, um, you know, in my life, in the lives of people. How that happens, I really have no idea. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if God elects to go mucking about in biology. You know, I, one of the lectures we heard in Oxford uh, by Philip Clayton, who's who has done a lot of work on what's called the non non interventionist divine act, objective divine action. So mm-hmm. essentially, God is not mucking about in creation, but we can still objectively say that God is acting. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's fascinating. But you know, one of his one of the points that he frequently makes is that if God chooses to intervene for one and not for all, that that is a pretty big strike against God's benevolence Mm -hmm. as a creator. Now, is that benevolence as we conceive of it from a human perspective? Mm -hmm. Possibly, right? So it's hard to say what actually is benevolent Mm -hmm. and that's a whole extra rabbit trail that is another theological debate you know with science and the theologians of today is just something they're always talking about yeah so it was just a question because like i think it can be hard for christians who go into scientific fields and be like wow this all just works god could have just set it in motion and he wouldn't have to touch anything forever You know, he made these laws and they're going to always act this way. So, yeah. Well, I think we also need to understand that the physical world is not the only part of the universe in which God might intervene. Um, you know, like I could say, like I experienced God's intervention before I became a Christian. I experienced God's intervention at a youth group retreat in high school where like I was literally in the middle of a snowball fight on a frozen lake somewhere in Michigan and there was this moment where I suddenly was alone with what I can only explain as the Holy Spirit. And I was suddenly and brilliantly aware that the transcendent part of God, which I had always sort of assented to its existence, mm-hmm. um, like that transcendent part became very imminent and was like right there in front of me. And it was the first time I had entertained the possibility that God might be interested in individual bits of his creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's so hard for us to make God tangible and then our decision to make him so tangible that we can lose sight that he also is intangible. And that's something we've been talking about on this podcast, mm-hmm. previous episodes. We always talk about how can we make God tangible to understand him more? Um, but I also want us to understand that even though we try really, really hard to make him tangible, it is also important to understand that he is intangible to us because we have finite, you know, capabilities as humans and no way are we equal to God um, in the sense of his um, benevolence and, you know, holiness and so on and so forth. So um, I think it was just like a humbling moment to just realize that we're talking about the physical all the time, but we also need to understand that there are ways that we have to understand that sometimes it just doesn't work according to what we think it would be, you know, mm-hmm. in the sciences and the mathematics and or whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> my next question is, does science help us understand what it means to be made in the image of God? Ooh, 
You know, I, I saw that one in advance and I, my, my gut reaction is to say that the Imago Dei is not rooted in physical attributes mm-hmm. or in what we would call the typical workings of biology. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so I don't think that that's where the Imago Dei lives. At the same time, we clearly as humans are biologically related to other organisms on Earth and arguably to all other organisms on earth. And yet the Bible tells us that we're the ones that bear the image of God and not the fish or the birds Mm -hmm. or the non-human primates. So somewhere biologically something changed that enabled us to become image bearers. What that is, when it happened or how it worked, I have no idea. Yeah. I think it's so interesting to hear just people's views on what the Imago Dei is or being made in the image of God is because there are so many ways to think about it. You know, um, the whole idea of our DNA being so closely related to so many different DNAs of other organisms. But when we look at maybe our closest related DNA um, um, organism, um, like a chimpanzee or something, Mm -hmm the the where where we find the differences is a lot of is a lot of times in like what makes us more relational than other animals and that is in the ability to communicate i had professor mark norlander who is my front french prof and he talked about like the dna difference a lot of times is in the larynx and how we're able to create sounds in an organized matter um, not saying that other animals can't, but in a very organized manner that we can comprehend as language and understand language in a certain way that maybe other organisms don't. And is that the Imago Dei? Who knows? Um, you know, we never really know. And I think it's important because a lot of times uh, the Imago Dei can be seen as um, some of the characteristics of God being relational. And being relational beings that we are, um, we could maybe see that the larynx, you know, DNA is maybe what makes us the image of God, being able to have these complex um, relationships with language and just a whole bunch of different ways of communicating. But I don't know, you know, so yeah. just a thought. <laughs> well, you know, it made me think of, um, I feel like sometimes, you know, when you say Imago Day, it's like trying to put a definition on it is like, you know, trying to pin something on a moving target or like hit a moving target to Mm -hmm. some extent. But I also feel like when I see a person who's doing a really fabulous job of being God's image bearer, I can point to that and I say, that person's doing it. Um, And it reminds me of this. I can't even believe I'm going to quote this book now. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert (laughs) Persig, which I feel like every person about my age sort of read as a just matter of course, right? It was part of like our philosophical quest of being like late teens, early 20s people. Um, And we all just read it. But in the book, one of the things the author talks about, among many other interesting topics, is about how when you see something that's of high quality, you, you recognize that it's of high quality, but you can't always explain you know, explain, you can't like make a rubric for quality because mm-hmm. it's this um, kind of emergent property and emergence is emergent properties is a term we use in biology a lot. And 
you know, a simple way of understanding it is to think of the whole being significantly greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. It's like hydrogen is a gas, oxygen is a gas, H2O is water. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be an emergent property. And if we want to put biological language to something like the imago, emergent property might not be a bad phrase to use. Yeah. So interesting. So interesting. So um, we're getting close to our time here. So I only have like a couple more questions. Um, One of them being um, with the relationship as humans with one another and understanding different scientific fields, how can we use the study of people from any field, biology, psychology, mathematics, whatever you want to use from any field of study that the science is involved in. How can we use those fields in understanding relationships with humans? So I think I'm going to try to answer this one from a Christian perspective. Okay. Um, From a Christian perspective, I think a question that any scientist can ask uh, would be, how is my work aimed at loving God and loving other people. Uh, You know, I think in biology, it's pretty, I I think that that's sort of an easy aim in biology, right? It's like, oh, we get the whole biomedical enterprise. We can love people by finding cures for diseases or Mm -hmm. by ameliorating pain. Um, I also think that that's, you know, and in order to do that, that would involve the work of chemists and mathematicians and physicists who, and mechanical engineers who develop medical devices and things like that. So, but I do think that there is this question of, you know, is, is the work that I'm doing useful and beneficial and at some really base level good for other people? You know, is it good for us to understand this? And it doesn't have to be immediately good. We don't all need to be doing applied sciences. We don't all need to be inventing medical devices or developing surgical techniques or finding new medications because those discoveries stand on the shoulders of the basic science. But are we aimed in a direction of loving other people? And then are we doing it with an attitude of reverence you know, are we taking are we taking the risk of doing work that loves people from a place of reverence for the being that created what we study? For my final question, um, if there is anything you've learned from your entire life, academic, non-academic, emotional, whatever it is, that has helped you envision a relationship with God, what is it? And how can we use it to discipline our relationship with God? All right. Oh, wow. It's hard to be an academic and get asked, what's your one take-home message? (laughs) You know, the word that immediately popped into my mind as you asked that question is listen. Um, Because... Good science and I think good faith both begin with careful listening to your subject matter. And we listen in different ways, right? Like as a scientist, I can 
listen to other investigators talk about their work. I can metaphorically listen by closely paying attention to the literature. Um, I can listen to the world around me and find out what problems exist that my expertise might be able to speak into. So there are all different kinds of listening that I can do as an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a Christ follower, I can listen to the words in scripture. I can listen to the words of poets who have their hearts focused on Christ and on the Holy Spirit. I can I can listen for God's own voice speaking into a stillness. Um, and both of these listenings, whether it's academic or whether it's spiritual, requires me to be quiet. So I, I think that that's listen more, talk less. Yeah. I think that's a common topic anywhere, um, whether it be the sciences, the arts, or theology or anything. It's just being able to stop Take a moment and just listen. Yeah. And being prepared to listen. It is hard work to be prepared to listen. Um, you know, and academics, academics are not trained to be people typically who are going to sit back and listen. You know, that's, I would say that that's not a characteristic. At least it was not a characteristic of my training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sit back, listen. So. Thank you for joining me on this uh, episode today. It was a pleasure having you just talking about a whole bunch of things, kind of just threw it at the audience. Like here's science, here's faith, here's relationships. Um, But I think it was all good stuff. So thank you again for uh, joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. This was unexpected and delightful. Isn't it though? People are like, I don't know if I can provide anything. I'm like, if you have relationships of any kind, you can always provide something. So thank you again.